So back to the question, how do you know that you have truly worshipped? How do you know that you've truly worshipped? Alan Ross, in his book, Recalling the Hope of Glory, seeks to answer this question in part, and he considers many of the biblical examples of worship in the Bible, like Jacob and Job and Isaiah and Isaiah 6 and various places, even in the New Testament. He considers those examples, and then he wrote this, those who received such a glorious revelation were completely overwhelmed. After all, the visions were so glorious, so otherworldly, that mortals could hardly take them in. That's one way you know you've truly worshipped, if you've been overwhelmed. A.W. Tozer said of Isaiah chapter 6 in that vision that Isaiah had of God on his throne, Tozer wrote this, quote, A person who has sensed what Isaiah sensed will never be able to joke about the man upstairs. Well, the same could be said of Revelation 19 as Isaiah 6 because it's the same God and the same throne and the same glory on display. I've read the passage for us this morning. We return to Revelation 19 for nine elements of true worship, part two. Our context is simply this. We're coming out of the fall and judgment of Babylon, chapter 17 and 18, the destruction of that great harlot, this literal city at the end times that God will deal with in judgment because of her persecution of believers in part and her great wickedness. And we're sandwiched here in between that and then in verse 11 and following the return of Christ, the second coming of the Lord Jesus all the way to earth, not the rapture event, but the return to the earth. And so we're in these 10 verses sandwiched in between these two great events of God. And what we are discovering in these 10 verses is heavenly worship. We're being taught by saints and angels who have already gone before us in this scene There at the throne, we're being taught what worship looks like, what worship sounds like, what worship is. And it's this great fourfold hallelujah, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. And so we're learning here nine elements altogether of this true and biblical and faithful worship. By way of review, we looked at the first five last week. The first we saw that is this, it's loud True worship is loud. We give voice to the burning in our heart. We lift up our voices in praise. We do our best before the Lord. Loud means our body's involved. Loud means our emotions are involved. Loud means it's beginning to take hold of our whole being. Secondly, we saw that it's repetitive. The word is used four times, hallelujah. It's repetitive because God made us repetitive creatures. That's how life works. That's how life works. Even worship is repetitive. Number three, we saw that true worship has got to be God-centered, anchored in God, focused on God, not on us. And because it's God-centered, we can even worship God for his wrath and for his judgment because it came from a holy and pure and righteous God. Number four, we saw last week that true worship looks back. We've done that this morning. This is the great gift of, of God to the church and the ordinance of the Lord's table. True worship will look back to what God has done. Here in heaven, they're looking back to the destruction of Babylon. Uh, We can look back to God's great acts in our own life. We can look back to the Lord's table. Uh, It takes us back to the cross. And then fifthly, last week we saw that worship is always, always, always a response. 
God initiates worship, we respond. God reveals himself, we respond. Always, that's the case. Whenever we initiate, whenever we try to start the process, it turns into idolatry. Things like a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that brings us to number six then this morning. And we're going to just look at two more this morning, given that it was Communion Sunday. So number six is this. True worship looks forward in hope. It looks forward in hope. Well, just staying with the example of the Lord's table, and Toby alluded to it. The Lord's table, we remember what Jesus did, and we do so until he comes. So buried right there in the text is the idea that as you come to the Lord's table, look back and look forward. We've sung it. We've talked about it this morning. It's here in verse 6 in Revelation 19. This great sound described as a great crowd You've heard roaring crowds, huge crowds, right? This great sound like roaring waters. Have you been to Niagara Falls? This great sound like mighty peals of thunder. Now I know that everybody qualifies for that one. This sound says in verse 6, literally, praise Yahweh because our Lord God, the all-powerful, our Lord God, the almighty, the all-sovereign king has begun to reign. That would be a real literal grammatical interpretation of that phrase. He has begun to reign because this verse, like this whole passage, is anticipating what's going to take place in verse 11 and following with the return of Christ. And so with the return of Christ, hello, deity of Christ, right? Hallelujah, our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. God has shown up once again on planet earth at the return of Christ. Again, this worship is looking forward to what has not yet happened. We look forward in hope. The rest of the passage looks forward. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice, be glad the marriage of the Lamb has come. Then again in verse 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb, blessed are those who are invited. And so everything about this passage has this forward-looking aspect to it teaches us how to truly worship. So we look back to God's judgment and we worship. We look forward to God's reign and God's rule and God's rescue and we worship. And those always go together. Where God rescues and reigns, God judges. And where God judges, God rescues. It's always justice and mercy. They go together in the economy of God. So what is anticipated here in verse 6? is anticipating the direct and divine, the visible, tangible, incarnate rule of God on planet earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, of course they're erupting in hallelujahs, right? And this is not new in the Bible, this idea of worshiping by looking forward. We go all the way back to perhaps one of the first written books of the Bible, the book of Job, We go back to that great hero of the faith who had systematically everything taken away from him with death of 10 children and then his health and his wife curses him. And and you know the story of Job. It's heartbreaking. And Job there at the very beginning falls on his face before God and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he goes on as he begins to debate and argue with his friends And he says this as he worships in hope of what is to come. It's in chapter 19. Job says, As for me, 
I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Wow, Job 19, 25 and 26 Way back at the beginning of progressive revelation, here is a hint of the bodily resurrection. It's more than a hint. (laughs) Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. What a great hope. What great worship as Job covered in boils. Job writhing in pain, scraping those sores with broken pottery says, after my skin is destroyed, after I'm laid low in the grave, after I rot as a corpse, yet from my resurrected flesh I shall see God because my Redeemer lives. (laughs) Wonderful. In other words, if we believe in the resurrection, we must worship in hope. We must, or we don't truly believe in the resurrection. I know every Sunday morning, I know men and women alike stand at a closet and they say, what will I wear to worship? (laughs) Let me tell you what to wear to worship. Wear the helmet of the hope of salvation. That's what you wear to worship. Protecting your thoughts with the future reality of my Redeemer lives. I want us to think big picture for a moment as we worship in light of the future. As we worship in light of the future, let's think big picture. No more wars or threat of wars or rumors of wars. No more false religions plaguing the earth and sending men and women, boys and girls to hell by the millions. No more politics and politicians and elections and State of the Union addresses. They simply will not be necessary. No more rogue nations threatening the safety and tranquility of the entire world. No more unpunished sexual assaults. No more open racism. No more injustice, abortion, crime, police abuse, or government overreach. No more, no more. No more injustice. No more jury duty. (laughs) No more voting. Who am I going to vote for? I don't even know this person. How do I know if I could vote for them or not? The earth will finally stop groaning. I'm going to go ahead right now and dub 2017 the year of the groan. Harvey, fires, floods, hurricanes, Puerto Rico, Florida. The year of the groan. Well, that's going to come to an end. The lion's going to lay down with the lamb and the toddlers are going to play with cobras and the earth will no longer groan for its redemption and its reformation. It gets better. Babylon destroyed Antichrist tossed in the lake of fire. Satan dumped in prison where he belongs, in a pit. And then best of all, King Jesus takes his seat on David's throne in a rebuilt and glorious temple in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, capital of the world. Babylon is no more. Jerusalem is exalted and King Jesus takes his seat. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. It it, it sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? It it seems, as I say it, as I've thought about it, it feels like a fairy tale 
this morning, like a dream. And it is no dream and it is no fairy tale and it will come to pass exactly as God has promised. You see, our hope and our future worship says, don't wait to worship now what is surely coming tomorrow. We worship today in light of a long tomorrow. And this even happens not only on a big picture frame, but a personal level. I want to inspire you this morning in your personal worship, in your morning worship, to be inflamed by your own future resurrection that is coming as surely as the sun will rise in the morning. Believer, your future is bright to say the least. Can't be any brighter, can't be any better. This morning I, I was attacked. I was attacked by a silent and invisible foe called cedar pollen. <laughs> like it must be February. And it just hit me this morning about 9.30 at the house. And so I'm trying to clear my head and I'm going to the restroom to get some tissue paper to blow my nose. And as I get the tissue paper and bend my arm to blow my nose, my left elbow just like went, like, because something's going on with my left elbow now, just randomly, just out of nowhere. It just has begun to hurt. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to deal with sinuses stuff and my elbow hurts and I've got other things I won't even tell you about this morning. And it's just all a reminder. I can't wait for the new body, for the trumpet blast, for the resurrection. Put it all behind us. Say goodbye forever to all of these things that plague our bodies. It's been alluded to already. I'm amazed at how God weaves things together in a service without us planning it. (laughs) Good hymn writers have always understood this issue of worshiping forward, of understanding that we worship now because of what's coming in the future. In fact, you would be amazed at how many of the final verses of our beloved hymns uh, end this way. I'm going to give you a, a sampling this morning. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Be thou my vision. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand in Christ alone. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim. It's in almost every hymn. Just start looking for it. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. All hail the power of Jesus' name. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. 
Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, the solid rock. I'm like the writer of Hebrews. Time would fail me to tell you of amazing grace in the last verse, of hallelujah, what a savior in the last verse, of there is a fountain in the final verse, but I'm gonna give you two more. (laughs) While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We couldn't make a list like this without this one. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen. And so our worship, to be true and biblical, must be forward-oriented. We worship now because of what is surely coming in our future. Number seven, number seven on our list of nine, true worship is joyful like a wedding. Joyful like a wedding. Look at verses seven and nine with me. Let us rejoice and be glad or exult and give the glory to him, to God, for literally the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts or deeds of the saints. Then he said to me, right blessed, oh happy, so happy are those who are called and invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. True worship, if it is biblical, is joyful. It just can't help but be joyful like a wedding. Here's the future event. Here's the future event being anticipated. And the angel giving the command of God says, let us rejoice. Let us exult. Let us be overjoyed with praise and celebration. Why? What, what is it that, that we're overjoyed about here? It's twofold. The wedding feast of the Lamb has come and, note it now, it's twofold, and his wife has prepared herself. It's both. They go together. They go together. Now, I've got to give you some historical background. Some of you will know this. Some of you may be new. We've got to have some historical background to understand what's being talked about here in verses 7 through 9. And the background we need is that of marriage and weddings and such of the ancient world, the ancient Israelite. And then we're going to make the spiritual connection between their practice of engagement and wedding, and we're going to make the spiritual connection to us. Well, it came in three phases. Phase number one was called the betrothal period. The betrothal period. And this is what Mary and Joseph were in when she became great with child through the power of the Holy Spirit. They were in the betrothal period. It it was a legally binding period. It was closer to our marriages than our engagements because to end a betrothal, you had to divorce. So it was a legally binding contract. 
This betrothal was carried out by the parents of the bride and groom in these arranged uh, marriages of their day. And it involved the payment of a dowry for the bride. Uh, There had to be a payment made for her. They generally lasted about one year in length, and this gave the bridegroom time to prepare a new home for his bride, the new family. And he would do this usually as an addition onto his father's house, an addition onto the complex of the father. This equates to the salvation of sinners in the church age the betrothal period, where we become, as we come to Christ one by one, we become betrothed to Christ, paid for by his blood, bought with the precious ransom price of his life blood. The Holy Spirit is given to us as our engagement ring. He is the down payment. He is the, he is the earnest money and the engagement ring for the believer. Now catch this. We're in this right now. It's the church age. We're in the betrothal period And the point of the betrothal period as it relates to the bride is to get herself ready for the wedding. And she gets herself ready by righteous acts, righteous deeds. The imputed righteousness of Christ becomes the imparted righteousness of Christ in actions of our faith. And so we're in that betrothal period and it's all about preparing yourself for your wedding day. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, Paul says to the Corinthian church, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. That's 2 Corinthians 11.2. And of course we see this in Ephesians 5, in the great passage on marriage. Christ there seeks to present to himself his bride, to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so that's the betrothal period, and that's what we're in right now as the church. Phase two is the wedding ceremony itself. The bridegroom would leave his father's house, would come to her village and her house, and he would issue a call to her, and she would come out with her wedding party attendants, And they had better be ready when he shows up because he might just come unannounced. And he shows up to that village and the village is abuzz and the village is is, is electrified with his presence. And he calls her out and they go back then to his home that he has prepared for them and the union is consummated. The marriage is consummated at this point. This is the rapture. This is what the bride of Christ awaits. We await the wedding ceremony. It happens at the rapture and it will happen in heaven. It will be a consummation of our union with Christ when sin is no longer a barrier between us and Christ. And so we exit the betrothal period and enter the marriage itself. Go with me to John chapter 14. I hope you will see John 14 now in a whole new light as you understand what Jesus is saying to his disciples who would make up the foundation of the church. John 14, one to three. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here it is. You there? John 14, verse two. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, well, you know, of course I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's it. That's the rapture. That's calling the bride to be where he is also in heaven. Now, if you go back to Revelation 19, verse 7, there's something very interesting here. And I've already alluded to it if you've been listening carefully. New American Standard translates the word there, uh, his bride. But you should have a footnote in your Bibles that says literally the word is wife. His wife has made herself ready. Back to Revelation 19.7. This is very important. There's a different word in Greek for wife and then a normal word for bride. And they're two different words. And the word used here is the word for wife, not bride. And that is because by the time this happens here in verse 7, phase 2 is complete. Phase 2, the wedding, has already happened. She's already his wife. So this now is not the betrothal. This is not the wedding ceremony. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the reception party being described. And that's phase 3. What's called the wedding feast. The wedding feast that follows the ceremony. It's a celebration. It's a reception. And it lasted several days. An example of the wedding feast is John chapter 2. You're familiar? Jesus' first miracle. Turn water into wine. That was part of a several days long wedding feast. A celebration. So let's put it all together. And this is much debated and much discussed. I'm just giving you where I land on these identifications. The bride here, I believe, is the church. I believe it is the church who is going to be returning with Christ. We'll see as we go on in chapter 19 that armies return with Christ and they're in the same clothing as the bride. Linen, white and clean, the exact same wording is used of the armies. So I believe this is the, 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 the bride here, the wife is the church returning with Christ. She is the only one in glorified, resurrected body at this point in redemptive history. She returns with Christ as the army and as the bride here of Christ. She is distinct from the wedding guests, as is the case in every wedding. (laughs) The bride is distinct from the guests. She is clearly human here because verse 8 describes her as being dressed in the righteous acts of saints. And she is distinct here from the new Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. It gets confusing because later on, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven is going to be described as the wife and the bride of the lamb. But that is an application later of this same idea, and there is still distinction. So she's distinct from the literal city, new Jerusalem. She's distinct from the wedding guests. She is the church. So then the question is, where is this wedding supper taking place? You'd just be amazed at how many questions the Bible raises in just two short verses. Who is the bride? Where is the supper? How long is the supper? All of these things are much debated. We might assume, and I've certainly been taught this most of my Christian life, that this wedding supper, this celebration happens in heaven. I have been taught that there's the rapture, The bride goes to heaven, and then for the seven years of the tribulation on earth is the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And on the surface, that sounds good. There's not going to be a huge problem whichever way you go on this. But if you look at what is being said here in the context and where we are in redemptive history, this wedding supper is not taking place in heaven. It's taking place on earth. They're rejoicing because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and it's in the context of verse 11, He has come. And when He comes, He's coming all the way to the earth, right? This is not the rapture where we meet Him in the air. This is when He returns to Mount of Olives. So this would make sense then that this celebration, not the, not the wedding ceremony, but the celebration of the wedding, it would make sense that it takes place on earth because it is earthy. It's earthy in nature. And listen, there's nothing inherently sinful about the earth. And there's nothing inherently sinful about our bodies. There's nothing inherently sinful about clothing and food. We're not Gnostics, Okay. <laughs> Gnostics believe matter is evil, spirit is good. That's heresy. God proclaimed it all good. So there's nothing wrong with this wedding supper being earthy and earthly in nature. In fact, what did Jesus say to his disciples at the Last Supper? When he was standing on earth, drinking literal fruit of the vine and eating literal bread, what did he say to his disciples? He said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is waiting because he's in heaven, and this has to take place on earth in his Father's kingdom. That's Matthew 26, 29. So this is an earthly event. It's a supper party. There's invitations, and there's clothing, and there's all the things that are part of that, right? Food and celebrating. There's guests who are there to celebrate with the bridegroom and the bride So what do we have here? We have the wedding supper of the Lamb takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It is the messianic banquet, and it launches the millennial kingdom. Some people believe it goes the entire thousand years. Others believe it's maybe the first week of the thousand years. In any event, this launches us into the messianic millennial kingdom to come. So what's the next question then? We know who the bride is. We know where it is. We know what it is. The next question is, who are the invited guests? And the word there, invited, is the word for called. Who are these called guests that make up this great party? They come from three groups. This is pretty technical, but just stay with me. It might answer a lot of questions you have. The The guests there in verse, what verse is it? In verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are made up of three groups. Number one, Old Testament saints who are resurrected at the return of Christ to the earth. You can read about that in Daniel 12, 1 and 2. They will be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I'm talking Isaiah, Moses, Job, and Daniel, Noah, Old Testament saints who have died and been buried, David, all of these saints 
are going to be resurrected not at the rapture because they did not die in Jesus. They will be resurrected at the return of Christ for the nation of Israel when he sets up his kingdom that is primarily oriented toward fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant with Israel. And so they will be resurrected to enter into that kingdom in their glorified bodies. That's group number one. Group number two, tribulation saints who died during the tribulation. And we know there's going to be millions of them martyred for the sake of Jesus during the tribulation. Well, what happens to their bodies? Well, their bodies also resurrected in that same resurrection. We read about this in Revelation 20, 4 through 6. It's all one and the same resurrection. John calls it the first resurrection to distinguish it from the one at the end of the millennial kingdom. So when Jesus returns to the earth, there will be a resurrection of the, all of the Old Testament saints and all of the tribulation saints who died during the tribulation. Now, all of the church is already resurrected. Okay? So who does that leave left to go to this wedding supper? It leaves only one other possible group. Tribulation saints who survive the tribulation. You're going to have tribulation saints who are martyred or die of natural causes. You're going to have tribulation saints who somehow survive and they will enter into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies to repopulate the earth. An earth that has been decimated. Billions have been killed. By the time Jesus returns... We know by the end of the millennial kingdom that there is a final war as Satan gathers one last rebellion of multitudes of the nations. And so this is the only possible group who can populate and repopulate the earth. So that along with the bride then distinct gives you at that moment in redemptive history, all of God's people up to that moment. Now, I had to share all of that so you knew what was going on here with this point number seven, and that is we are to worship with the joy like we would find at a wedding or at a reception. Just go there with me. You know, the ceremony, and certainly if I do it, it's going to be kind of serious at times. I like to tie the knot pretty tight in a wedding ceremony. Somebody told me that once, and I took it as a great compliment. Yeah. So, you know, and then the ceremony should have some joy, should have some laughter, but it's also a very serious thing, right? Before God and these witnesses were joining till death do us part. That's very serious. But you don't find that kind of seriousness usually at the reception, do you? <laughs> I mean, it becomes a, a celebration, a happy time, a hopeful time. There are smiles, there's laughter, there's music, there's dancing, there's food. Yes, glorious food being enjoyed. There's gift giving, and there's words of love and encouragement and there's speeches by the best man and the maid of honor and there's prayers of blessing by the parents over the bride and the groom and, and people are smiling and laughing and most people at a joyful, God-centered, Christ-honoring type reception just really don't want it to end. It's a celebration of what God has done in the life of these two people. It's a celebration of God's provision of a bridegroom for this bride and God's provision of a bride for this bridegroom and and so we want to celebrate that we want to live in faith that God has given us a life of joy and a life of promise and if you're an invited guest whether it's here or whether it's just in our day-to-day life if you're invited to a wedding don't go to that wedding if you can't be joyful 
Don't go to that wedding if you can't celebrate with the bride and groom of the provision of God in their life and express that with great gladness. See, those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb are to rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. And that's the way it ought to be. Our worship then now should be marked with the, by the joy we have in the Lamb of God. I told you it was twofold. And our worship now can be marked by the bride preparing herself. We don't worship each other, but as you and I put on righteous deeds, that should prompt our worship of God. As I see you growing in Christ, changing, serving him, that should prompt my worship of God, my gratitude, my joy. The worship here is twofold. It's not only the supper of the lamb, but it's also the bride, the wife is ready. You know what happened? She said yes to the dress. (laughs) I'm always looking for some nugget. And that's it. There are TV shows about the dress and the drama and the excitement and the, and the level that that decision rises for the bride and for her mother and for her family. And let that be a reminder to us. Believer, every day say yes to the dress. In other words, put on clean, righteous linen of the saints, of the holy ones. That's really the point of the betrothal period is that you would say yes to the dress. It's that you would be prepared and I would be prepared when he comes to our village unannounced. Unannounced. Now look closely at this because it's even deeper than that. There is great joy here in God's sovereign grace. Did you see it? Did you see it in verse 8? The bride made herself ready in verse 7. Well, way to go, bride. (laughs) But look at verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself. She made herself ready, but God gets the credit. God gets the glory, verse 7, because it was all given to her. It was all sovereign grace. Even her righteous acts are sovereign grace. She did nothing of her own strength. She did nothing of her own merit. And so the joy here ultimately finds its termination point in God the Father and his sovereign grace that is going to be so expressed at this wedding supper. This is really a place of overflowing joy. Think through it with me as we close. The father is joyful over the happiness of his son. The son rejoices over his pure and spotless bride. The bride exalts in her glorious bridegroom. And the invited guests, well, they're just happy to be there. Amen? Just happy to be there. The question is, will you be there? Will you be there? Will you be there rejoicing in the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will you be there because now you're able to worship in hope of your certain future? You can be there. You've heard the gospel already this morning. I don't have to repeat it. You can be there if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. If you'll come to this Lamb of God, if you'll admit to Him you need His cleansing blood, if you will confess your sins to Him as your great high priest, 
if you will ask him for his righteousness to cover your filthiness and then a life of growing righteousness following him as his disciple. If you will come to Christ, you'll be at this supper. How glorious is that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wedding supper of the Lamb. We anticipate it with great joy. We look forward to it. We can hardly wait. Our hearts are bursting to see Jesus and have all of our dreams come true. Father, in the meantime, do your work among us, among those who are not ready, who are not ready to meet their maker. We pray in Christ's name.